It's the Tuesday edition of Canuck Central. Satyar Shah with Vic Nazar in for Dan Riccio this week. We should call it Remix Tuesday because we're changing things up a little bit today. Kevin Woodley usually joins us on Wednesdays. He's going to pop in here coming up in a little bit. The next segment, we'll talk all things goaltending. And with the National Hockey League entry draft being less than a month away now, less than a month away, Vic, before the Canucks select 11th or lower. Probably not higher. We'll see. Depends what happens. We'll talk to Sam Constantino as well, and that's coming up on the show today. And as always, you can interact with us on the Dunbar Lumber text inbox, 650-650. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner, Bridge Street, Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center, or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. And uh, we look forward to your texts and interaction, as we always do here on the show. Josh Elliott-Wolf producing. Been filling in for Bick on the People's Show as well. So we'll get him into the conversation as the show goes on. Elon on the board producing. All hands on deck for this edition of Canuck Central here, Bick. And, you know, when it comes to where the conversation is kind of going, it's interesting today, Milan Lucic is uh, taking away, taking a lot of uh, oxygen mm-hmm. in the market. We discussed him and guys like him and whether the Canucks should target them yesterday. But I think today, what I'm really intrigued by is finally knowing what the Stanley Cup final looks like. Got a final. Vegas versus the Florida Panthers. What we will be guaranteed is a new cup winner, a team that has never won the Stanley Cup before. Pretty cool. Not bad. Now, one team has uh, struggled a lot longer for it than another. Yeah. But it's not as, as if the Panthers have struggled as long as... Some other NHL counterparts. No, but I mean, it's funny. The Panthers got to the cup final and was it 96? Yeah. It was 96. Uh, lost to the Colorado Avalanche. And it's, well, you know, been 27 years since they were last in the cup. And that was only a few years into their existence. So uh, for the Florida Panthers fans, who probably changed. I mean, I don't know how many original OG Florida Panthers fans are around or still Florida Panthers fans. But they went from, hey, maybe we're onto something here to a 27-year spell before they made it to the cup final again. Only 27 years. Only 27 years. It's only slightly older than Josh Elliott Wolf. Well, I mean, by seven years, I think. <laughs> yeah, slightly. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I think it's interesting to look at Vegas, Bick, and we were discussing this before the show. How did they get here, mm-hmm. the Vegas Golden Knights? We talked a lot about the Florida Panthers, and you know Frank yesterday mentioned you know which teams are going to look at the Florida model and think that they can repeat the same thing, and he mm-hmm. wondered out loud whether Vancouver's one of those clubs. But how about this Vegas team? They're in the cup final now. How have they found their way here? And an even bigger question is, how have they found such incredible consistency and sustainability over these six years, making to the cup final twice now? In these six years. Yeah, I think there's a couple of guiding principles here that you can take away. And I want to be clear, I don't think there's wrong takeaways. I just think it's what I prefer and what I think the conclusion is, is what I'm trying to take away. Is when you have the sustained run of success that Vegas has had here in the short order, I think a lot of people will look at and say, hey, look what they got to build with. Mm -hmm. And we've focused on the expansion draft, the bevy of picks they weaponized and to get to this roster that they're at now. But the other thing I look at is the amount of depth that they've had in their organization. Mm-hmm. And the takeaway I'm having, and it's similar to the conversation we were having at the end of the show yesterday, talking about the Miami Heat and what they've done after they win Game 7 last night, is there's quality in the league if you're willing to invest in it and in willing to push it to fit what you need in your roster. 
Well, I think it's it's, it's a number of things. One, one of the things that they do really well is identify players who fit their identity. Yep. They know very fine roles for what they can do. They know exactly who they are. They know exactly how they play, and they know exactly the types of players to target that they think can work. And I mean, they they made the bigger moves, of course, which mm-hmm. we'll talk about as well. But I think the continued, I, I'd say, um, evidence of that ability is a, a small addition they made this past year. A guy like Michael Amadio, for instance. Sure. He scored a couple big goals for them already mm-hmm. down the stretch in the playoffs, of course. He's played, you know, a, an energy role. Small little bit player, but it seems like every year they find someone like that. I mean, it wasn't that long ago they acquired Chandler Stevenson for, what, a fifth-round pick or whatever it was? Nick Roy was uh, a trade with Carolina. Yeah. that's they, They've managed to unearth depth throughout their entire organization. The Jack Eichels, Mark Stones, Petrangelos, the, look, they're obviously important. And and they obviously carry the mail for the team, and, and there are big, big reasons of why they're here. But the ability to grind out so many other transactions elsewhere on their roster, to me, has to be a, a big part of why they're here. And, and how many guys, like they have four guys that are still on their team from the expansion draft. Yeah, Marcia Soule, Riley Smith. Um, William Carrier and Braden McNabb. William Carlson. Well, I guess they traded for William Carlson. Uh, no, I, yeah, but, but again, that's like the four guys. Yeah. And then how many guys do they have like on their team like from their draft, like their entry draft? It's they not a lot. a lot of picks away. Yeah, so it, it's not exactly a lot. So they've overturned every stone, not to make a Mark Stone right. pun there, but they've taken a very aggressive route to get to here and unearthing all this talent that is pushing them into the spot now. And when you have sustained success like that, I, I look at that and say, you know, the term we've used a lot in post-game shows is half measures and full measures. Whatever their plan is, they have committed it to it and hit the accelerator on it. There's no half measures in the Vegas Golden Knights. Uh, no, I mean, you know what? They're kind of, they've so far been the LA Rams version of the NHL, right? Right, like, hey, all we care about is us getting that superstar player, mm-hmm. right? Can we get Kilo Mac? Can we go out and get uh, Dave uh, Odell Beckham? Right? Mm-hmm. Can we go out and get the biggest stars, Bobby Wagner before, like Jalen Ramsey, for mm-hmm. instance? And they want a Super Bowl doing that. And maybe the biggest proof of concept of them being that type of team would be winning the Stanley Cup this season, right? But they missed the playoffs last year. Let's mm-hmm. not forget. But what did they do? They Double didn't down re- on themselves, yeah. They just hey, double down. They didn't they, they didn't get too uh, wild with it. They brought a new coach in who's made a big difference for them. They got healthier this season, made a couple of little minor moves, but they've been the same team since the day they came to into the National Hockey League. And having that that identity as an organization, and then having the philosophy of like nothing's going to get in our way, having the full measure, I think that's a big lesson to take away because I don't think it's just one thing. I think what we often see with with us looking at models, for instance, is pointing to one thing and say they draft really well. They do this one thing yeah. very well. And I think it's a number of things that Vegas has done well. But more than anything, I think it's having that organizational coherence about exactly who you are and then being so committed to building on that that nothing gets any way of doing so. Yeah, the, the organizational congruency, I guess. Yes. And you mentioned the third element. And again, I think all of these are true. I focus on the depth side because I think that's played a huge role in it. But the, the the draft picks have played a huge role, and it should not be discounting the coaching element that's impacted where they're going right now, too. Yes. What Bruce Cassidy's done certainly has to be looked at as, okay, how did he take this group 
to that next stage where a previous coach could not. Yes. It's 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 been uh quite the job. Again, because you mentioned missed the playoffs last year. Yes. Injuries were part of that. Eichel coming in late last season, part of that obviously. But where they are right now, um, very impressive job. And I think those three factors are the big three for me, for my takeaways from why the Golden Knights are here again in a handful of years. My favorite part about this is how they've essentially used, they've traded up from a paperclip to getting a house, essentially. Mm. Like, that's what they've done, right? So if you started, if you go back from what did they do in, in the expansion draft, they got as many picks and prospects as they could, right? They got as many assets as they could. They weaponized, weaponized it, but they didn't sit on them. They didn't just collect a bunch of these, you know, paper clips or whatever. They started trading them. They started moving them. And I think their entire philosophy has always been, how do we upgrade? Yeah. And and you don't, unless you find a superstar player, you're always pushing to upgrade. And I think that's the right philosophy to have. Like, you can only have so many different players. But if you're lacking a true number one defenseman, you find a way to get them. They've, they've taken Alec Martinez and Shea Theodore and found someone better to push them down the lineup. Yes. Rather than saying, I wonder if Zach Whitecloud can push Shea Theodore a bit better. Right. No, they've, they've got, they went out and got people that are better. William yes. Carlson put up 40 goals. How easy would it have been for so many teams to say, well, we have our number one center. No, well, they went out and got Jack Eichel to push William Carlson down the lineup. They've done that over and over and over again. Do you sit and say, we got Riley Smith and Jonathan Marsh or so, or do you go get a Mark Stone? And... Suddenly, like that depth that I was talking about, it starts to materialize because you've been aggressive to go get these stars. But th- they've had some right principles, some nice luck to have it go this way as well. Of like course. Jack, Jack Eichel's out could have gone either way. Well, if you don't have, if Jack Eichel doesn't have the neck injury and the standoff with his organization, yeah. he doesn't become available. But, it, but then there's a risk in going after that player. How many teams didn't want to go after Eichel? They say, we're not touching this yep. guy. Confidence, too. It did. Because it's Vegas, it's easier to make this joke. But do they roll the dice a bit? Yeah, it's and and the numbers have come up for them. Yeah, it has. And I think organizationally, that's that's what I want to see. That's what I like to see from teams, right? And in Vancouver, in the past, how often has somebody come in and been like, "Oh, this guy's showing us something. You got to have this guy. You got to keep this guy." Like, I had a discussion on Twitter mm-hmm. the other day. We were talking about Anthony Bavillier and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And people were like, "Well, they have cap space to say sign him beyond this year." And I'm like, "Well, they do, but is this the roster then?" Or we're like, okay, let's go pay Heronic. Let's pay Bavili. Mm-hmm. Let's go pay Elias Patterson. And then you're doubling down on the same exact roster next season. Like, there are guys I like. I like Bavillier, But wouldn't you like to upgrade from him? Like, if I'm if I'm spending $4 million on Bavillier, wouldn't you like to trade him and then use assets to go and get a player who's better than Bavillier? So if you're spending $4 million, go spend $6 million and get a better player at least. Get a higher-end player at least. And I think that's how you have to go about this. Instead of being like, oh, I feel pretty good about this guy. We found this guy. He, he fits in into the middle six. How do you get... How can you turn a middle six forward into a top six forward? How do you f- turn a second round, second line forward into a first line forward? That's essentially what Vegas did with Alex Tuck and a first round pick and Peyton Krebs. Mm-hmm. They upgraded on Tuck and got a center in Jack Eichel. Now, Tuck's been fantastic for the Buffalo Sabres as well. It's not like they got nothing back in return. Fans here will remember Alex Tuck. Yes. No, Exactly. <laughs> But, I mean, that's the type of thing that don't get too married. I know Tyler texts in and says, the Vegas model, if you're an existing team, clear the deck. Don't keep digging. Don't get attached to anyone. Depth is more important than stars. Make deals. Retiring numbers is not what the NHL organizations need to do. And if you Speaking have good, to my heart in that last little yeah. bit. Yeah. <laughs> now, if you have good enough players, you hold on to them for as long sure. as possible. And there's always exceptions and everything. But that idea of not being happy with your team. And not being content and always looking to upgrade and not being afraid to take chances. Like, that's the thing I want to see more of. Like, I know you mentioned this before, but 
if teams had to t- had to follow a model, copycat a model, which model would you want as teams to copycat? Mm-hmm. Just out of sheer entertainment. The Vegas Golden Knights. Golden right? Knight trades. And Panthers would probably be second in that group because yeah. obviously they have success with the uh, Kachuk trade. But just looking at the the final four that we had, we had this discussion a couple of weeks ago, obviously. But you know when it was like Dallas, hey, retool on the fly. They've they've ma- they've mastered that version of it. Carolina's probably the safest version of that. Yeah. They make a lot of transactions, but they're waiting for opportunities that say, hey, this team's down on a player. Let's go capitalize on that. But it's a to me, it's a, a safe endeavor. Whereas Vegas is, we're swinging big. Florida, here recently, we're swinging big. And for these two teams, if if this is what, if, if teams are going to copycat this, this should be very exciting for the rest of the league then too. If they If we see that. The only thing with the NHL is, it's so hard to make deals because it's such a flat cap. And mm-hmm. I wonder how much that gets in the way. And, you know, we can sit here and say, hey, be like Vegas. But you also have to have a Peyton Krebs you can trade. You have to have the Alex Tucks who are wanted by other teams, right? I mean, and, and how did they get Mark Stone? At the time, the player they traded, mm-hmm. Eric Brandstrom, was considered the best defensive prospect not in the National Hockey League. One of the best defensive prospects drafted not in the National Hockey League. Well, they flipped that guy and got Mark Stone. And a second round pick. Whatever it was, yeah. right? Now, Branstrom hasn't hasn't popped out, but it's about not being afraid of making those types of deals either, being able, able to identi- identify those types of players. Um, this question, how many guys have no trade clauses to Vegas and Florida? Not many. Not many. I think a lot of players are willing to go to Florida and Vegas. Yeah, well, uh, hang on, I'll bring this up here. But I feel like... No, I say as how many guys have no trade clauses to Vegas and Florida, as in like would not oh, want to go there. So it makes it easier because yeah. everyone wants to go and play yeah, in Florida. Yeah. I, I'm just looking now; they have a bunch of guys that actually have no trade. Oh yeah, they have guys that have no yeah. trade clauses, but you know, Brayden McNabb has there. a modified no trade. Yeah, I mean, hey, that's all fine and good, and it's different <laughs> for Canadian teams and all <laughs> that, right? But still, it's it's uh, like we've seen Florida, for instance, be a team that teams players want to go to. But uh, up until this year, they haven't exactly shown a lot of uh, coherence as an organization. I know they've been good the last few years and had some chances, but it's also been a team that's been up and down a lot, especially through their existence. Um, oh, also, uh, Nate from Comox. It wasn't Khalil Mack who was traded to the LA Rams. Von, so Miller. Von Miller. I was going to say something. But Should have said something. You, you were rolling, was, man. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was like that scene in Animal House where it's like, don't get in his way, he's rolling. <laughs> he's on a roll. Don't get in his way. But so if is it how much of what Vegas is doing is let's say applicable to Vancouver. Like what can Vancouver actually do that would that would be reminiscent of that? Like to me, if you're trying to be okay, how do you get and this is the point I've always made. Like if you're trading JT Miller for instance, mm-hmm. go and try to get Aho. If you're trying to, like that's what I would do. Like I'm not against me. Peg up. Exactly. And with any one of these guys. Like for instance, I know it's difficult right now because you know Bester is a negative value with his contract. Garland has a bit of an issue, but what about trying to get a better players by moving those guys. Like, what else do you give up to upgrade on a player? Can you follow something like that? Or is that just too wishful thinking considering, number one, the winger market, mm-hmm. and now Vancouver's up against it with the salary cap? Well, yeah, well, it goes back to the Hoaglanders and the Pitcolsons of the world, right? Which Are you willing to cash in on those types of players, and which ones are you willing to cash in? And this is where, it, as soon as you start extending the assets, and that's why we talked about sea logs yesterday and draft picks, and this is where the element where I say kind of the chicken and the egg version right. of what we were just talking about with Vegas, obviously it's easy to just point like, hey, the, the picks, the picks, they had a baseline, and there's validity to that, and that's why it's an important argument to listen to. 
I guess I'm just looking at the conclusion of it. And the Canucks aren't really in a spot where they can say, we have a baseline to start to be aggressive. Well, and, and I think that's one of the things that I wonder about. They're still a year away from amassing enough assets. I think if you're trying to be in the market of, hey, let's go and make these aggressive trades, I think you need to have one more year of asset building. Not only adding more to your group, mm-hmm. but also having players emerge. Because I think over the next three drafts, they have just 21 picks. Yeah. Now, there's some of the more in the third round. They have a future fourth next year. So they, they have extra picks, but when you're short two twos, you're short a five, you, you still have the correct allotment of picks that you but you're, start with. But, but you're down the seconds. You're down the higher you're down the higher asset value. Yes. But they haven't gone into deficit for total picks. No. When's the stretch coming that they start to accumulate? Well, I mean, the hope had been I mean, so technically this season they have their exact allotment of draft picks, right? Mm-hmm. And next for the season, next couple have, of seasons. They, yeah. For the next three years they have their exact allotment yeah. of, of draft picks. What year are they going to have a surplus value, surplus picks, but also surplus picks in the first three rounds? Not like, hey, we have we have five picks in this in the sixth, sixth and seventh round. Your your hope would be that it's this year, yes, or the upcoming draft, uh, the the twenty twenty four draft, because we talked about Myers yesterday, Bavillier, expirings. Can you transition expirings into capital? Well, yeah, and like for instance, I think having the extra fourth round picks. If you had a second, could be fantastic for making trades. Like right now, we're talking about guys like Matt Zuccarello, for instance, final year of his deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe even a guy like Jonathan Marchessault. Like, what do you think these guys going to go for? Probably a fourth or a third. Pacioretty went for next to nothing, even though like I think guys who are on expirings and teams that are in cap trouble, you're not getting a lot for these players. But you can get some good players like Oliver Bjorkstrand for some fourths and fifths mm-hmm. if you have enough picks and also having the cap space. Yeah, and. I- a team like Dallas here recently, like they've had a bevy of picks too. Now there was a couple of years where they sold, but or sorry, bought, but they they've essentially had seven to eight picks for a bunch of years, averaging out. But that's how you do this infusion of talent. And hey, previous regime here, as much as there was claims that they value draft picks, the actions did not uh, follow the suit. And it's upon this group to, to, to start the, stop the bleeding at some yeah, point. Yeah, they value trading draft picks. Yeah, and having the amount of picks here right now is nice. But to your point, they have to accumulate higher value. No, absolutely. Uh, Nelson and Kelowna, Vegas is successful because they go after good players and trade for better. Team will not go after slow players like Lucic or Reeves, uh, Sutter, Beagle, etc. I mean, they literally had Ryan Reeves on the yeah. roster like last year or the yeah. year before. Like They've had a lot of players like that. That they uh, brought in. Eric and West Van, 650-650 if you want to text in. Vegas model, starting as a new franchise, stacking your team with second and third line players, swindling massive picks from other teams, and building on this with trades. Uh, and this one, Brandon from South Surrey. Vegas playing with fire, so close to collapsing if they start to miss on their bets. Boston is the plan that should be followed. So how do you follow a plan where you drafted maybe the best two-way center of all time in the second round? One of the best... 20 years ago. Yeah, one of the best feistiest wingers outside the first round in Brad Marchand. Hitting on a franchise defenseman, what, 16th overall in Charlie McAvoy? But here's the thing. And finding a franchise uh, winger in like the 20s with Pasternak. I'm not saying... don't. Yeah. Fall, I'm, I'm not saying like what they did, is that is that how easy is it to emulate that? Because that's what it comes down to. Like, say, say anything you want about Boston and what they've done. They're not here if they don't hit on McAvoy and Pasternak. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I mean, more recently. Sure. Like, and those guys weren't top ten picks. As we were just talking about, that there's no wrong answer to the Vegas thing. 
I think we're too rigid when it comes to you have to follow the one model. Yes. There are principles from every organization you can take. The good ones, at least. How Carolina does it is different from how Boston does it, is different from how Toronto does it, is different from how uh, Vegas does it mm-hmm. or Dallas does it. But can you implement as many of these things? And that's why we talk about organizational identity. For the past seven, nine years, the Canucks haven't had an identity. At least. No, they haven't. And now I think there's tr- they're trying to impose one. Yes. Is it going to stick? That's the big question. But I think we all know what the identity, what they want is. We saw it. They have a TV commercial about it. It's very evident what they're looking for and what they want. But I mean, in that vein, though. Structure! But in that vein. and this is Habits! <laughs> but this is something we were yelling about a year ago. Standards! <laughs> Two years ago, we were yelling about this. We're like, what is this Canucks team? Yeah. Like, how do you even go about adding to, a, to this team? We don't even know what they are. And it's like, I don't know what type of player they should be after. I don't know what they're trying to be. Now it's a lot easier, though. You're like, okay, they want to play a, a certain style of hockey. It's very evident the types of players they've gone after, mm-hmm. right? They went after and got Mikheyev. They were after Barbashev. You see how he's playing, or at least they were, they have some level of interest in that type of player. They brought Dakota Joshua in. You see the type of style he plays. Mikheyev. Mikheyev, we mentioned. The only difference is Kuzmenko, a more skilled, but mm-hmm. high-end skill guy. They went after it. Everyone wants a high-end skill guy, right? But look at the traits of the players they brought in. They're bringing guys in to play a certain style of hockey. And once you have that identified, now you can disagree, and you can say, I don't like what they're doing. I don't mm-hmm. like their plan. But having at least identified what you're going to be, how you're going to be that, it makes it so much easier for you to identify players. Because now when you look at a list of 20 centers, you can take 10 off. You're like, this guy's not going to be able to play the way we're trying to play. Instead of looking at 20 guys being like, who's going to fit on our team? Because are we playing this way? Are we playing that way? Well, this guy could fit if we have this coach. Mm -hmm. This guy could fit if we try to play this way. But unless you have it figured out, then you can really narrow down your targets. And how much easier does it become if you narrow your targets for something specific as opposed to taking this buckshot approach of finding a proverbial third-line center, proverbial top-six winger? And just going back to the, the, the name you mentioned, someone like a Chandler Stevenson, right? It was identified, especially because when he started, was playing next to Mark Stone. Yes. Mark Stone does great defensive work, and he covers up a lot of flaws that don't, don't really exist in Chandler Stevenson's game, but... Mark Stone will cover up flaws for his other two line mates. Yes. So if you just inject someone with speed into that lineup, and one of the things that we've always talked about is the breakouts where out to the winger, center's looping through with speed. Like Chandler, They do that for Chandler Stevenson because he's breakneck speed with the puck, and he can get it and put pressure upon the team, and suddenly everyone starts uh, catching up to the play. Chandler Stevenson was, was acquired for a song. Yeah, well, it was fifth round, and, pick, and you just look at it and pick? say, "Hey, we need we need someone to play with more speed in this lineup." Yes, because we have all these other assets and and value that brings to our line. We just want it. it you just, as you said, you just cut the short list in half, and it's easier to identify players to fit the roles rather than just going through an ideal of, "Hey, let's just get a good third line player, second line player, mm-hmm. and maybe he'll play better." He's playing better because you identified how he works within your system because. You have an identity. Well, absolutely. And I mean, we've seen this go the other way. Like, I think the best example of this was, remember when the Canucks signed Sam Gagne? Sure, yeah. And he was coming off a year where he was getting sheltered on the fourth line, and he had like a career season in points, and he was really good on the power play. He got a two or three year deal from Vancouver for like three million per season or whatever. And the idea was he could provide some soft cover as a three-line center, third-line center. His metrics, if you looked at this chart differentials and everything, looked at how he played, you're like, yeah. You know, those are third center, third line center metrics and everything. This guy could be, you know, a third line center potentially. He couldn't play that role. He came in. It's like, well, you you sign somebody with the numbers of a third line center, with the profile of a third line center. 
in terms of numbers and everything, but he couldn't do the things you're asking him to do. So did you identify the right player or not? And I think that's one of the things you're seeing. So that's what I'm really fascinated about this offseason. Do you identify the right players that fit in? And what can you learn from the teams who have had success so far? Well, the rumor in the interested in uh, the, the, the reported interest in someone like Barbashev. Is, mm-hmm. Look, it's, it's so difficult to make it happen, but it's interesting to just kind of look back in hindsight and be like, all right, there's an identifying model of this is what they're trying to chase. Well, I think if they had their way and they didn't have Besser or Garland on their roster, I think that's the type of player they'd love to have on their wing. Like instead of having those guys, they'd rather have that type of player. We'll see. We'll see what they can do this offseason. All right, uh, we'll keep the conversation going. Keep your thoughts coming in to our Dunbar Lumber text inbox. We'll expand the conversation to our good friend Kevin Woodley and goaltending. That's next on Canuck Central. Talking all Canucks all the time. It's Canucks Talk with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drance. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Back in on Canuck Central, coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. It's Satin Vic. Kevin Woodley is going to join us in a few minutes' time. We'll bring him in in just a moment. And the story of the past couple of weeks, goaltending-wise in this market, and really globally, especially in Latvia, has been Arturs Silovs. And we had a good chat with Kevin Woodley about Silovs last week. And well, he just kept doing more. So, so Kevin, for, for all the uh, you know platitudes and and the love we showed to Arthur Silovs last week, he just outdid himself over the course of a week. Yeah, you know what? Like, um, I think one of the things you've heard me talk about this before is that we can't. I can tell you all about what I see between the pipes, but you can never. It's a lot harder to really understand what goes on between the ears. And so you look for signposts along the way, how goalies manage high pressure, high leverage situations, um, not just in terms of wins and losses, because so often uh, the results, you know, frankly, can be out of their control as goaltenders, right? Like at the end of the day, you can only, you know, how your team plays in front of you matters and all those things that we get into those analytics all the time. But, you know, does your game change? Do you... Do you get jittery? Do you get more aggressive with your positioning? Do you chase the game a little bit in high-pressure situations? And I think that's, you know, one of the takeaways. Beyond he's just a really good goaltender, and there's a lot of positive upsides, and and I'll still throw the caveat out there that that does not mean that everything automatically translates to the NHL level as soon as next season, and patience will probably be a virtue here. Um, but, But the fact that he didn't, and we saw it in the NHL this year, too, like that he just went out there and played his game, didn't feel, and a lot of goalies have told him this over the years, you step up a level, you step up uh, to a higher, brighter spotlight, and the tendency is to feel like I have to do more because this is a better level, this is a better league, this is a bigger stage, so I have to do more. And it can be a real process to get to the point where you just realize I have to do what I always do and just execute it well. And... There, there were a lot of signs throughout the way here that Arturs did not, did at any point, really, you know, change what he was trying to do to go away from the foundation that he's laid over the past couple of years with the Canucks. So, a lot of positives there. And again, the caveat, just you know, this does not automatic. There, there, you can find world champions that never make the National Hockey League. So, um, 
you know, it's a different tournament. It's a different stage. It's a two-week heater. Um, but we've seen the upside already from Arturs, and this is just you know, another example of his ability to control it um, and be in control of his game in a pressure situation, and that all bodes well for the future. So as far as what did happen on the ice, uh, and, and you mentioned just, just the continuation of it, and for people that, you know, didn't watch Seelovs that closely for the five games and haven't been watching in, in Abbotsford, like what what are the strengths that carried over into the World Championships to, to vault Latvia into that third-place finish? Well, the strengths that made him a Canuck uh, in terms of the things that they look for under Ian Clark and, and Dan Cloutier, let's not forget the role he played before leaving the organization in this draft pick. I know he was, you know, he was a big part of it is my understanding. And you know, Dan really thought highly of our tours. Um, the athleticism, the length, the ability to sort of control um, and extend limbs without breaking seal along the ice to, to um, reach or extend with your knee in a butterfly rather than reaching with the toe and having the pad come up, like a lot of sort of mechanics and physical tools that have always been present. Like you saw all of that. You saw the reactionary game. You saw the explosiveness. You saw, you know, dynamic, exciting saves and that capability. But to me, one of the biggest things that evolved, uh, and, and, and I think throughout this season, and I think um, probably have to point to – you know, Marco Terranius for, for playing a role in this in his first year as a Canucks development coach, especially when you see as much as he's applying all of his teachings from a technical standpoint, uh, you know, from a mindset standpoint, he's got a real calming influence on these guys. And talk to Spencer Martin after going back down there about mm. uh, their work together in the same vein. And the biggest thing that I didn't know about Arturs coming into the season that he answered more than I thought maybe he, you know, it, it's a big step. And I'll, there's a lot of uncertainty about whether you can make it is he just always seemed a little too I'm trying to think of the right term. Anti is not a fair term. Um, you know what? This is going to require an ex- explanation. Okay. Because the term comes from James Reimer and he would use it whenever we were on the ice in Kelowna and he just felt like he got a little too aggressive. Like he went after a puck a little too much rather than letting it come to him. Uh, a little bit of chase, a little bit of overaggression, a little bit of extra tension in your body because you're trying too hard. And the word that James would always use, and it was always odd coming from James, but he, you got too horny. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Technical <laughs> goaltending term. It makes sense. Just got it a little sense. too horny. <laughs> I know. And so, yeah. but that was in Arthur's game. And, and I remember talking with Curtis Sanford about it. Like, you know, how do we get that out? Um, you know, that, that sort of, tendency to go into save execution or save stance a little prematurely um you know a little over aggressively a little bit of chase a little bit too early in a sequence and not let the game come to to him to sort of chase it a little bit not positionally but just in terms of getting into your save execution maybe a little prematurely and then you know that puts you in goalie 911 mode you know, a step or two sooner in a sequence than maybe you would like to be, then maybe you're going to need to be at the highest level. And his ability to sort of go from that's what we saw last year, last season in his game, and even in the drills, we ran a bunch of them in goalmag.com, and there were times going over the drills with Curtis where you could see it in there. And I don't want to say it's gone completely, but what a massive step he took this year. In the AHL, uh, in his time in the NHL, 
and then over at the World Championships in terms of, you know, not chasing it too much, letting it come to him a little bit more. And, you know, it's sort of, it's, there are technical elements in terms of the mechanics and not getting too low and wide and locked in that you can sort of ascribe and try and teach out to, to that tendency. Um, but at the end of the day, it, it's a lot of feel and it's a little more instinctual and it's a little more, um, a little harder to pin down in terms of how to teach it, how to manifest it, how to make sure it continues. And so you're, there's always an uncertainty that comes with that. Like, can he take that step? Does he have it in him to be a little more patient, to be a little quieter? Mm-hmm. And I think, I think he showed like, it, it's hard to quantify, but when you watch it, you can see it's there now. Um, way more than it was last year. And that that's a really important step for him, and a really big step. And one that, like I said, frankly, you know, I think from the outside looking in for all the gifts and physical tools that you saw there, you couldn't be sure that he would take. And, and he did this year. And that, 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 will, that bodes well for the future, whether it's a straight line to the NHL or whether there's a few more ups and downs along the way, which – to be frank, for most goalies, there usually is. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, there, there. I mean, nothing's linear in development, especially for goaltenders as well. But and, and you know, this kind of leads me into the next question: The Canucks have time with Thatcher Demko because they, they, he's under contract for three more seasons, and that gives a nice little runway here for them to see what Arthur Silovs have has. But is it fair to view him in pencil right now as the succession plan, or is that getting ahead of it? Uh, that's. I mean, to me, that's getting a little. Is it fair to pencil him as a potential to become that goalie? Yeah. Okay. But to pencil him in and say, like, he's going to become that goalie, that every step is going to, like, you know, you're basically saying it's going to be linear, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, and we know it's just, it just typically isn't. And, and the other thing is, like, the levels that Thatcher has reached – and over a longer period of time, and I know that, that there were questions that came with the performance this year and, and the struggles with both um, health early in the year and the team environment early in the year and how much of it was which. Um, but we've seen over the course of, you know, the season before for the most part, um, that ability to play not just in the NHL, but at a really high level in the NHL for an extended period of time. That's a big step, right? Like, like Arturs is on a two-week heater at the World Championship. You know, um, Thatcher's sort of preview of what he might be was the Vegas series, right? Bubble Demko and all that stuff. Um, but that's a much higher level, right? So to assume that it's all going to continue, like that's, I think what you want to do, and I think the idea of and why teams build goaltending departments or you know, make sure that somebody like an Ian Clark has input and influence over, um, you know, and he's got that director's title as well, over drafting and scouting is so that you can do what he did in Columbus, which is build an army. Well, army might be too big a term, but, you know, build a steady flow of multiple guys that have that same type of he could be the succession plan and have three or four of them ready to go by the time you need to figure out who it is. Because like you said, not, it doesn't always happen in a straight line and it, you know, lots of different things can, can, can happen. But when you look at what Columbus had, when, when Bobrovsky left, you know, they were confident in letting him go because there were a number of guys coming behind him, 
like multiple guys and the hopes that, you know, out of all those guys that showed the same potential we're seeing in our turns right now, you know, counting on each one to hit would be foolish. But if you've got a whole bunch of them because you've built through drafting and development this succession plan, you know, you just got to make the right decision in terms of which one you pick, but chances are you're going to have more options. So, yes, he, he might be that guy, but you can't say it definitively right now. And I think in a, as an organization, your goal is to make sure by the time you need that decision, you may have developed two or three others that are also options or that you can see getting there soon enough. That's what you want. So you don't leave yourself in the position of an ironic, I say this now, but of a Florida Panthers that need to pay, you know, $10 million to find their answer. And it's working out now, but I would argue for the majority of this contract to the point, not so much. So you mentioned like Demko had his show me moment and it was in the bubble. Um, you know, Seelov's obviously the path is a bit more impeded because Demko's there and you'd have to hope for an injury in that scenario for him to get runway. So how much evidence do you feel you need to, to, to look at and say by 2026, this is how many games he should be played to provide that show me opportunity rather than in a quick sprint, it's prolonged over two and a half years. Like how, how many games should be trying to map out for Seelov's by 2025, 2026? Ooh. That's that's a good question, Vic. I don't know that I have the answer offhand, but um, the progression would probably be something like, okay, your typical twenty-five game backup, um, you know, and 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 when I said typical, more like you're getting thrown into you know the B option games mm-hmm. as opposed to, now I kind of look at what they did with Schneider, right? Like typical backup minutes, typical backup role, some real crap burgers in terms of you know, short end of the stick, second night on back-to-back against really good teams where, the, you know, you're just basically, you know, it's it's a scheduled loss. Um, but see what you can go out there and do. Two, you know, second-year bigger moments, you know, playing in Boston, giving them an opportunity to um, take on more of a role in more difficult situations, but not just the back-to-backs, like not just the, not just the crap sandwiches, like here you go, kid, have fun tonight. Like there's nothing left in front of you, but more bigger moments, tougher games, because they're bigger moments, more pressure-packed as opposed to, like I said, scheduled losses, and just progress from there. I don't know that there's a number. You just need to see. It's like signposts, right? Like I talked about with, with the tournament. You know, as we throw them into more, as, say, there's a two-week injury, we play them for two weeks straight, straight or three weeks straight or whatever opportunity presents itself, do we see signs of fatigue? How does he manage that? There's so many different little things that go into being a number one goaltender and hopefully between now and then you have opportunities to see signs of how, about how we can handle it. And given the nature of the position, the increasing need to have a, a number two option, not just as an option, but as somebody who plays a lot, uh, the increasing likelihood of injuries to the position and the fact you're going to need somebody else to play for long stretches in that role, I think there'll be plenty of opportunities for him to sort of show whether he is capable of rising to those occasions and rising to those moments. You know, these conversations, I mean, it, it, it can seem premature, right, Kevin? Because, I mean, you have three more years of uh, Demko still under contract and, you know, there's still time to figure all this stuff out. But, I mean, the plan can't really be to give Demko a long-term contract when he's 30, right? I mean, I, I, hey, I guess anything can happen, but that doesn't seem to be the wisest investment, right? To give goalies who are 30 years old big long-term contracts. So it's, it's almost something they, all, they have to start tackling in terms of wrapping their heads around this is going to be different in three years, most likely. Yeah, but again, like, I, like, 
I don't know, short of just building that sort of stable of options yourself, and that can also be finding other other teams' cast-offs mm-hmm. and seeing if you can get more out of them uh, as part of that. I don't know that you can have a definitive plan this far out because right. when it comes to planning and goaltending, like, is there any position that, you know, is sort of less predictable? Um, and that doesn't mean goalies are voodoo. It just means there's a lot of different, you know, different sort of circumstances uh, and situations that can change a path, can change a plan, including injury. Um, and, and also what kind of team they're going to be. You know, like, what do they look like on the back end in 2026 when you need to make this decision? What do they look like from a structure and coaching standpoint? Are they a team that's going to need a Bobrovsky playing at a Conn Smythe level to have a chance to be an eight seed that, that makes it to the cup final? Or are they a team that's going to have so much structure and defensive di- discipline in place that they can find an Aiden Hill for a fourth-round pick and don't need the stud number one to carry them through. Like, cause we're seeing teams doing it both ways now. Um, and I think that goes into the equation and the uncertainty of being able to project that from 2023, right, where we are right now to 2026. Like, I don't know that you can plan for absolute. Of course you want to plan to have more depth and more options. And they are by knowing which one's going to be your campfire. Like this is the way we're going now. Um, I just think that's really tough, especially especially in a position where there are so few absolutes. Hell, three years from now, depending on who, what teams win cups and how, we could see another shift in the style of play that dictates some of the strengths and weaknesses of the goalies in place right now don't necessarily translate to the way the NHL game as a whole is being played three or four years from now. We've seen that. That's why I never, I, you know, I always say like at risk, the risk of losing my goalie union card, um, I avoid term for goaltending. I like Jonathan Quick, right? Like Matt Murray in Pittsburgh. Like Matt Murray did not, you know, we've been through this before. Matt Murray didn't forget how to play goal. The way he played goal doesn't work anymore because the game changed that much in that short a period of time. And so to sit here and project which guy is going to be the one to replace Thatcher Demko if indeed you need to replace Thatcher Demko, and you're right, long-term contracts for goalies at age 30 probably aren't the way to go. Um, but it's it's a really tough thing to do. And so I think your goal is to continue to build the stable, to continue to wisely invest development dollars and draft picks so that when you get to this point three years from now, maybe the answer is CELOS. Maybe the answer is more Demko. Maybe the answer is somebody who's not even on our radar not now, but the game has changed and they've been ahead of the development curve process to the point where all of a sudden some 21-year-old kid that's drafted this summer that we never thought of is the future for the Vancouver Canucks. It can change that quickly. So it's really tough for me to sit here and say, yes, it's Archer Silov. They need to move mountain and earth to make sure he gets every opportunity to be the next guy because it's just too hard to make that prediction. So I got a hypothetical for you here, and I'll, I'll give you an out that you can say that they're on the, on the same tier. But You know I love to sit on the fence so much it hurts, Bick, so give me that out. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you the out. But I was just thinking last night, you know, watching uh, the, the, the stars get eliminated and just, just trying to place goalies kind of in a rank, which I, I try to do. But uh, Demko or Ottinger, Woodley, who's, who's better? Ooh, good question. 
Oh man, are you putting me on the spot? Big oh, hey, I, I did give you an out. Okay. <laughs> um, both stay healthy for the next five years. I'm picking Thatcher Demko. Hmm. I'm biased. Yeah. I'll admit that. I've been here. Um, that said, like, I've talked to people in Dallas. Like, they love that kid. It's not just what he's capable of. It's the mindset. It's the mental approach. Like, they they absolutely love that kid. And, you know, based on talking to some of the goalies that have worked with him, some of the people that have worked with him in Dallas, I understand why. And so, you know, maybe it's just my biases. I think – from a tool standpoint and a di- dynamic movement standpoint, explosiveness, um, just sort of a couple of technical things that I think over time, as teams have gotten a longer look, they've started to target and exploit on, on Jake um, that he, I think he's going to have to make some adjustments on. I see more physical upside in Thatcher Demko. That's who I would bet on. If you're telling me both guys are staying healthy for five years, Based on the physical play, the physical tools, I'm picking Thatcher Demko. That said, Jake Ottinger and all the other stuff that I hear about him between the ears and off the ice and the way he does his stuff, not that Demko doesn't, there's a lot to like there. But I think we've also seen, you know, in these playoffs, and actually if I look at the adjusted numbers over the last couple of years, for all the attention that Jake has got, like to me it's really impressive that he's done what he's done at such a young age with such little experience. But a lot of his raw numbers are influenced by a very goalie-friendly environment. And so I think he gets put up on a pedestal at times. And listen, that doesn't include the, the first, the first round series against Calgary last year was like one of the greatest performances we've seen. And that was not just about team environment. He was that freaking good. And so if that's the ceiling and you think he can reach that more consistently, then this is a different discussion. But I think over the bulk of the two years outside of that first round series, and we saw it in the playoffs this year, um, it's been a little more team dependent, frankly, mm-hmm. in terms of what's in front of him. And when things open up, there's some exposure there and pucks end up in the net. And you know, to a certain extent, that's true of every goalie. But I just think some of the expectations and narratives around Jake are based on when he's playing, like the Seattle game, right? Game seven, Jake Ottinger came back and rose to the occasion in game seven to knock off the Seattle Kraken. Seattle Kraken had two scoring chances the entire game that hit the net and one went in. So I just think some of that has been maybe a little overdone. And I say that as still a full-fledged like Jake Ottinger fan and think he's going to be a legit high-end number one in this league for a long time. But if you're asking me to pick based on physical tools and some of the speed I see in his game, I'm pitching, picking Thatcher Demko. Uh, one more question before I let you go, and a quick and one And tell here. Josh not to clip that and send that all over the world because I'll never hear the end of it. I think he already clipped it, to be honest. But uh, <laughs> a quick one before I let you go. Does anybody have an, an advantage in goal in the cup final? Bob's playing at an incredible level right now. It's kind of hard not to look at Bobrovsky and see um, that as an advantage tell you what whichever team can get to the middle is probably going to win this series you know i've talked about and people like where did this come from for bob like like Mm -hmm. out of nowhere and you know when i look at the weaknesses for bob over the past couple of seasons a lot of the spots on the ice where he gets scored on are spots sort of mid slot sort of between the circles even around to the bottom of the circles between the hash marks and around the bottom of the circles you know, and, and I'm watching these playoffs, and I'm like, geez, I can't remember the last time I saw a shot from that area of the ice. So he's been exceptional. He's making, like, dynamic, difficult, momentum-changing saves on grade-A chances. 
But they've also done a really nice job, and Maurice did this when he had Hellebuck in Winnipeg, of making sure that uh, as ho- even if they're grade A++, like grade A chances that go in on a lot of goalies, they're not the ones that seem to have plagued him the most, or they're not from the areas that have seemed to plague him the most. And they're giving him, he reads the game at a really high level. They're giving him a chance to read the game and use his athleticism. Nobody yet has really done a good job of getting to the front of the net and taking away his eyes. And I think there's an element of that in the way that Vegas defends as well. Um, And Aiden Hill, big goalie playing deeper along the goal line and and sort of for him, he doesn't have to be explosive to get across because it's so so much shorter a distance than it is for Bob. So I think the team that can take away and get to those areas and create the chances that both teams have been good at preventing is probably the team that has the most success. But if we're purely going on goaltending, I don't know how you pick. And I I like Aiden Hill, but I don't Mm -hmm. know how you pick him over Sergei Bobrovsky at this point. It will be... You know, even if they get outplayed, Bob gives them a chance. Whereas I'm not sure if it was the other way. I don't know that Aiden Hill's stealing a series for the Vegas Golden Knights as good as he's been so far. Well, we can't wait to find out. Cup final starts on Saturday, and we'll have a game or two to break down when we chat with you again next week. Always great stuff, Kevin, and we look forward to chatting with you again very soon. I appreciate it, boys. Enjoy this beautiful weather, and we'll talk to you next week. Will do. That is the one and only Kevin Woodley in Goal Magazine, NHL.com. Make sure to follow him on Twitter as well. The authority on goaltending in the media, especially here in Vancouver as well. And, you know, we'll delve into the cup final a bit more, especially as a week goes on here, because uh, Vegas just punched their ticket in, obviously, last night, defeating the Dallas Stars. But what do you mention about getting to the middle of the ice? Already have a note on it to keep an eye on, Mm -hmm. seeing how that gets defended. More than anything, like, how can you prevent it? Which is what I find, it's easy to say, but like, how do you do it? Are you able to do it? And how do you go about exposing that area of the ice, which is very difficult to do. Yeah, it's not, don't want to take anything from Woodley, it's it's, it's not a novel idea, but now the machinations of what it looks like in this particular series is going to be really interesting. Because both teams have taken that away to yes. what Woodley mentioned. is like, can anybody get there? Yeah, obviously yeah. 32 teams want to get to the middle of the yes. ice. But now what's going to be interesting here is, like, w- I think when we hear that, we think just carry it to the middle of the ice, cut to the yeah. middle on transition, and suddenly there's your opportunities. But what's going to be interesting for me to watch is, do they try to create create it off of scramble plays? Pucks off defenseman's legs, goalies pads, and hey, that's getting the puck to the middle of the ice. And are you there to capitalize then on the opportunities? How it looks to me is going to be the fascinating bit. Yeah, I find that really interesting as well and something we'll keep a tabs on. One more series remaining, and it is the cup final, Vegas versus the Florida Panthers. We're going to switch our sights to NHL draft prospects. Canucks have the 11th overall pick. A lot of uncertainty about whom goes where, especially outside the top two or three selections in this year's draft. And we'll talk about that and more with our good friend Sam Cosentino from Sportsnet. That's next on Canuck Central.